Hello and welcome to AgTech So What, brought to you by the Agthentic Group. I'm Sarah Nolette. The word sustainability is something we hear and talk a lot about in food and ag, but what does it actually mean? And most important, how do we actually do it? If you've tried, whether as a consumer trying to use less packaging, or as a farmer trying to figure out what practices to change that will be good for the farm and for the world without going broke, you know just how hard it is. But there are also opportunities, and startups and investors are seeing this. Today, we speak to three industry leaders, each working at different points along the supply chain to shake up how things are done. We dig into how technology and data can help build trust and resilience, why developing better metrics can unlock new business opportunities for farmers, and why eliminating packaging and food waste is so damn hard. So let's start at the beginning of the supply chain, the farm. I think the biggest challenge we've got in sustainable supply chains is metrics. That's Lachlan Monsborough. He's the head of sustainable business development at Rabobank, and he gets to work directly with farmers. How do we translate the actual footprint of all farmers into the consumer goods market without basically the emotion that's attached in certification at the moment where people are making choices, consumers are making choices based on perception of what good actually is rather than what it is, what is actually measured. The issue of perception versus an actual evidence base remains a challenge all over food and ag supply chains, with many brands making claims about sustainability that unfortunately look a lot more like greenwashing. But I do think we're seeing a shift. Brands now want to be green, not just claim that they are. Lachlan says for Bank, this starts with knowing the environmental footprint of farms. At least for us, things that are happening in terms of the, the pressure that's on central banks to essentially equate financial service providers' footprints and disclose it openly, that means we're forced to have essentially more transparent conversations with our clients about, well, what's actually going on on farm, right? And not just from a, a P&L perspective, not just from a yield perspective, but what, what are the impacts that the productivity is causing and, and what are the practices that you're using to start to mitigate them? And then on top of that, you've got the whole climate risk thing, which is basically, again, the financial supervisors of the world, the central banks, the financial regulators are starting to ask, okay, well, what does transition look like at certain RCPs for your portfolio, right? So what are the essentially the debt owners of the clients doing to reassure you as the banker that with a, a two-degree warming, a three-degree warming, whatever it might be, that they're not going to go belly up in the process of that transition, right? So, and that requires, we've all, all panellists have spoken about it, that requires metrics. To be able to quantify that and quantify that accurately, that requires metrics. So I think the whole, whilst there are some sectors of the industry that are still sort of feeling their way on it, it's going to happen, right? The, the European Sustainable Finance Taxonomy is sort of laid down. There's a whole range of things that are sort of forcing us as financiers to sort of start to work with our clients to, to quantify this stuff and also work with other service providers to ag to work out, okay, the farmer probably doesn't want 15 different people coming to them and saying, oh, I need this data, I need that data, I need this data. How can we, how can we synergize it a bit better as well? Hmm. Yeah, it's really interesting. You talk about the risk side. Is that kind of what you're seeing? A lot of these drivers are coming from a either regulatory or risk perception, or is it coming from like opportunities to make more money? Or where, where are you seeing the push or pull? Well, that's the balance that we 
we're trying to work out ourselves because you, you can't just go to your clients with a big stick, right? You, they go to another bank. So what are the opportunities that are there? All the top FMCG companies in the world have got these targets out to 2050 or 2040 or whatever it is around their footprint, right, whether it be an emissions footprint, water footprint or whatever it is, which are metrics-based. So how, how can we create supply chain opportunities that within that to basically meet the market that has been signaled? So risk, whether it's the actual environmental risk that farmers face in a changing climate or the risk of increased regulation, is a driver. And expectations from both consumers and the shareholders of big food and ag companies is another. And now banks and investors more broadly are seeing not just risks, but also financial opportunities to be more sustainable. And this is where startups in particular come in. Jessica Vieira is the Senior Director of Sustainability at Appeal Sciences. Appeal launched back in 2012 with a $100,000 grant from the Gates Foundation. We're a company based in California. Appeal Sciences, we've developed a plant-derived coating that's applied to fresh fruits and vegetables after they're harvested. This edible coating slows down water loss and oxidation such that the, shell, the produce lasts twice as long as it would have without the coating. Appeal has grown over the last 10 years and has raised nearly $400 million, backed by big-name ag and sovereign wealth funds and celebrities like Oprah and Katy Perry. But I think what we're also seeing in the last few years is this huge uptick in, I mean, we're a venture capital-based or supported company in venture capitalists looking for opportunities focused in this space too. Food waste is a great example. It's It costs 2.6 trillion dollars to our global economy. And it's this kind of invisible tax on our food system. It applies in almost every supply chain, every actor deals with it. And it's just something that is baked in. And we we kind of view it as not necessarily just a tax, but like an untapped savings account that if we can figure out ways to unlock that value, we can reinvest in the supply chain in other ways too. And I think there has been this shift of really like Not just focusing on, you know, we need to do less bad, but this is an opportunity for innovation that's worth investing in. We have a large partnership with the Kroger Company, who's a retailer here in the U.S., and even they have an innovation fund that this year is solely focused on investing in companies upcycling materials. So, I mean, you're kind of seeing it all across the board, and it's so different than when I started in this industry where we had to even rebrand some of the programs I worked on to not call them green because of how that might not get traction internally for certain things. And it's just like a total 180 now in terms of the I mean, support and resources going behind these types of programs. One of the challenges with food waste in particular is that it's a physical product. And so software only solutions just won't cut it. But hardware can be expensive and, well, harder to scale. Olympia Yager, however, is not afraid of a challenge. She's the founder of GoTerra, an Aussie waste management company that uses robots and maggots to turn food waste into animal feed. For transparency, we are an investor in GoTerra via Tenacious Ventures. Here's Olympia. Um, based here in Ngunnawal country in Canberra. We build uh, waste management infrastructure to deliver food waste management using insects. I come from a conventional agricultural background, mostly sheep and some cattle. I think for us, the thing that's most important when we think about the supply chain and, and of course, where we fit in in food waste is both the changes of socioeconomic 
focuses and then the resiliency of sovereignty of the supply chain when it's linear as opposed to circular. And, and the need to move to a circular economy, I think, is recognised, but we've focused primarily on digital solutions and we are now sort of in a place where we're like, oh, we actually don't have the infrastructure or hardware required to deliver those, like some of the most incredible digital solutions. We still need hardware and infrastructure to have them realised. And I think, so we sort of sit right there in that like socioeconomic changes are coming who's going to pay because it's like if you're going to reuse things then their first cost might be more expensive but and then you've got to pay for them more times as you reuse or fix and repair and then what's going to be needed to realize sustainable supply chains that create regional sovereignty in relation to hardware and infrastructure I think everyone's realizing the opportunity and I love the reframing food waste as a savings account instead of a tax because most of what I believe around you know food waste is a symptom of broken supply chains and an incentivization towards production right and so if we don't have places to put the stuff we're producing it gets wasted but if we are going to invest in upcycling and recycling like those ideas are really great but what we end up finding is you create a way of doing things that then has no front or back end to deliver or or then push it the other way and so like what I think what we're actually facing is a really big challenge. It's not un- undoable, but we have. I think we do have to step into thinking at, and looking at hardware because most of the investments are not in hardware. They're in data-driven, SaaS platform-driven plays, which are important. The data is really important. But to deliver on these things, the vertical integration of hardware is going to have to be realised. When we look at it from a food waste perspective, you've got types of food waste through the supply chain and some of them are easier to manage than others. Some of them don't even exist once you get good data, but then as you get further down into the waste streams that are actually waste, the, the challenge of managing those in real time is actually very difficult and and can't be solved easily. So we do see like hundreds of millions of VC investment into food waste right now, but it's all on front end. So it's all pre-consumer from farm gate, manufacturing, brewing stuff. So very easy to manage uniform waste streams that happen in large volumes, but not the stuff that actually costs us money that happens, the 60% of food waste that happens on the on the far end of the supply chain. And so, yeah, I think we're, we're running into a sort of sticking point where data is going to be there explaining what we need, but we will not have hardware to deliver on that need. Yeah, it's so hard to understand. I mean, what goes on in a consumer's home is such a black box, even though we know at least in you know high income markets, that's where a majority of the waste happens. There is this cool technology. That they're they're more looking at it at the restaurant level. Winnow is the name of the company where they have this AI solution that like looks over your trash can and it identifies and it's on. It's basically on top of a scale too. So it actually, as things are going into the trash can, it's identifying what it is and how much is going in. So restaurants at least can actually have some information to like learn how to better manage inventory. Yeah. Then it's like, we still have to either decide we're going to try to change behavior. Like we can know what's going in there, but that's different than getting people to change. And like who who actually pays for this? Is it the restaurants that pay for the different infrastructure to get people to put stuff in different bins? Is it the food brands that pay? Is it the corporates that pay? Is it the waste management companies that pay? I don't know, Olympia, what's your view on, on these kind of sustainability 
requirements? Like who who actually pays to make this happen? Yeah, so it, it, there's, it's interesting, right? Because the, now as we start to move to more sustainable things, you see people that wouldn't have paid previously paying now. So like you're seeing lots of technology that's bringing more of the supply chain in past the farm gate, Prevenir, all those sorts of things that are saying, like farmers want to own the farm gate, the story past their farm gate a little bit more and they wouldn't have paid for that historically. It was sufficient to make the farm gate uh, part of their, their story and then that was enough. And now it's like, no, I want more of this supply chain to be stuck inside my farm gate. And then the second part, what we see and what I think is really interesting from an, any startups out there or how we think about this moving forward is this perspective of the technology. So if you say to a restaurateur, you should pay more for wasting food, not necessarily a ter- terribly great pitch, but that's kind of what's happening right now, which is like we have a great technology, it's new, it does all these wonderful things. You'll have to pay more than the current system you're using to solve this problem. And they're like, I don't see that value. But if you like Winnow, the point of Winnow is to explain to chefs and the restaurant managers where they're wasting food and where they actually have food waste. So the two things are very different. And so if you can actually get an account of what you're buying and then throwing away, you'll make better decisions. And so it's that that story that has to be done a little bit better by founders, I think, when we go to bat in the market. Because, yes, you are going to pay, it's going to be more, but the change and the shift that comes from that data means you don't pay at the other end where you used to pay. So you're just sort of moving the payment up and down, I guess, the supply chain. But that's where I think the socioeconomic stuff is super interesting to me because education is going to be the core part of a new adoption and how we reimagine what we've done all, you know, we've always done it this way and now I have to reimagine why I'm doing things to bring in new data to make better decisions to still get the same outcome but just in a different format. Are you, Lachlan, I'm curious if you're kind of having the same conversation around education. Like do, do you see that as a big part of what needs to happen here is changing the conversation and building more awareness around like what is waste, what is sustainable, that kind of thing? Oh, completely. Because... Essentially, the commodity chain in terms of the value proposition has been the premium, for want of a better word, is often bastardised, right? So what the farmer gets and what the, the trade along the way makes from it is, is something completely different. So that's that's being valorised in different ways, which probably takes away from that initial, hey, why is the farmer doing this in the first place to tell a better story about the food that they're producing and that's being used for marketing purposes, which doesn't always get the result of what was intended, right? So that's that's one thing. But like I know I sound like a broken record here, but this is this is the whole point to about moving to metrics, where uh, you're actually talking about a CO2e footprint or a water footprint or whatever, rather than another brand in that space, right? Rather than a certification brand in that space, because. If we are able to essentially take away that sort of perception of, of what something might entail or might not entail based on a, a brand that sits on a product, a certification that sits on a product and turn it into a metric, that will educate people in themselves. I mean, they'll be making the, the decision, the purchasing decision for something that's quantified rather than a perception. 
I guess the counterpoint to that, like I, the, one of the challenges with that is we already see it, especially at the consumer level and increasingly at the farmer level, this mm. absolute explosion of different metrics. And so farmers mm. are being asked now to report on 1700 things and the metrics platforms might be there, but which ones do they report on and to who? And then like, there's just too many things out there and it's organic and now it's carbon. And so the counterpoint to that maybe would be around metrics overload and how do you get back to enabling decision-making both at the farm level and at the consumer level. Jess, what do you, what do you think about the, the metrics conversation? I mean, I agree with you. This was attempted in Europe several years ago with the environmental product declarations. They kind of walked that back. They're revisiting it again. I think it's really hard to develop guidelines that apply across like entire sections of the grocery store. For example, you know, you can use QR codes. There's ways that you could link this information to consumers. A colleague of mine who, who used to work at a, a retailer said they, they did this whole program. They had a QR codes related to sustainable seafood. No one really looked at the QR codes, but when they surveyed people, people were more likely to buy it because they knew the information was there. And so they felt like it was probably a more sustainable option. And I thought that was just such an interesting Cause like, I don't even read every label. I know if I'm being honest, like I don't read every label of everything that I buy in the grocery store either. Um, so how could I expect someone who probably is less informed about sustainability to do so? So I, I do think that some people are talking about like maybe gamification will get it to work. I don't know how many parts of our life we really can gamify at once. I'd like to think we need to make it really easy for consumers. Like we need to give them a better option without them needing to make a million more decisions in the grocery store. I don't think there's a great solution yet though for how we how we communicate all of that information. I think that's that's the whole point though. Whilst we're still in where the majority of our, let's call them sub-brands behind products are about perception rather than metrics, that's a dangerous place to be in because you don't actually get the impact, right? So so long as we can get those, call them sub-brands, underneath the consumer goods, the, the brands of the actual consumer good, to be metrics-based and to be understood to be metrics-based, then I think the, the confidence that was just talked about can, can actually be delivered, yeah. yeah. I think you're right. It's not necessarily consumers who need to see the data. It's like those credible, they're the skeptical groups that would dig in and kind of undercut your brand reputation. If you yeah. can satisfy them, then like you're building the right amount of trust, perhaps. But don't we think the challenge around the metrics is that we're not really sure what this is yet? Like organics, an organic product, for example, the metrics are pretty we, we understand what the metrics are required to consider yourself organic. But for sustainability, it's so broad right now. Like what is sustainable is such a broad thing that I think that's why we're seeing this sort of confusing pylon of metrics where we're like it's got to be SDG driven, it's got to be carbon emission sequestration driven, it's got to be this, it's got to be that. And then you must overlay that with emotional stuff so grass-fed you know all these other components of the impression of what sustainability means right which is both driven by economics but also by social and cultural values and so I, I sort of think about it from some of our waste clients so we have you look at fast food just going to precursor this statement by saying have lots of other issues in sustainability and waste but in the waste <laughs> of actual food 
in the waste of actual food, fast food restaurants do not waste. McDonald's has figured out how to build a handout that is exactly the size that means that people do not eat only a third of a quarter pounder. They eat the entire quarter pounder, the entire box of chips. And so a McDonald's restaurant might waste, you know, less than 20 kilos of actual food a week. That is insane for how much volume goes through a McDonald's restaurant. Fast, fresh restaurants, which we all align with being, you know, very clean and good for us, waste far more than that because they're trying to cater to you walking up and going, I don't want that part of that and I'd like you to add this to that and then I kind of want more of that and then I want it all fresh. And so they have to do a different thing. And so I think the metrics will start to align once we actually understand where we want our businesses to be. Yeah, and I think that's a really good point. So we've done a bit of research in the bank looking at sort of the top 50 FMCG companies around the world and understanding in their public commitments what their hot topics are and their, their, their carbon biodiversity, soil health, waste, in emerging markets, the whole social element, modern slavery, whether it be labour rights, all that sort of stuff. So, I mean, this isn't this isn't peer-reviewed perfect research, right? But this is so that we could have a conversation with our clients that, hey, whilst we've got a regulatory element to it, the people that buy your commodities have stated this is what they need to deliver to investors and consumers as well. Right. So we we see those sort of five topics as relatively synonymous that farmers have to consider that, that essentially the, the, the top of the supply chain has to start to quantify and has to start to certify over the next 20 years to meet essentially 80 to 90 percent of the, ag, the, the global agri supply chain. Unfortunately, we don't really have time to wait for metric systems to align. We need ways to take action today to make supply chains more sustainable. Here's Jess. One area that's relatively small that we see in produce because of its perishability is there are entire supply chains that rely on air freight today yeah. to move around the world. I mean, <laughs> if that's not an inefficiency, like I'm not sure what is. So, I mean, that I see as a massive opportunity, the amount of plastic packaging that's used and plastic packaging is really tough because one, if it's preventing enough food waste, you know, some of the environmental costs can be justified Two, plastic packaging oftentimes is serving so many different functions for the food. So it might be for grouping as well as protection, as well as shelf life extension. And there's tons of real estate for marketing for all of those different claims you want to make that we just talked about. And so it's hard to find, to create solutions that can actually address all of those functions that would be needed to like truly replace or eliminate it. For appeal, we have one product that we've launched here in the US for long English cucumbers because they're just wrapped in single use plastic, just shrink wrapped. And the only thing that shrink wrap is doing really is shelf life extension. So we've actually been able to eliminate that with the use of our product. But admittedly, there are very few examples where it's that straightforward because the plastic packaging is usually doing so many different things. So, you know, that's obviously, you know, another big area. And then the last area that we're thinking about is the cold chain and the use of refrigerants are a big environmental hotspot. And 
Are there opportunities for us? There's a lot of technologies to kind of get smarter and optimize our use of the cold chain, but in places where we haven't implemented it yet, where we know in the next 10 years we are going to be, can we think about leapfrogging that with less intensive ways to store and distribute food? So that way we don't need to develop those kind of emissions intensive infrastructure systems in the first place. So, I mean, that that's probably that's a big area that, you know, not one technology is going to solve on its own, but something that could be exciting to look at. Yeah, for sure. Your point about packaging, though, Olympia, can you share, you see the other end of this with what GoTerra does, like you see what comes out the other side of this waste conversation. What do you see are the challenges and opportunities there? Yeah, so, so the challenge is that people don't care. And we don't actually realize or have a strong understanding of how much packaging we use at all, like period. But if you think about, if you tried to sit down and think about every time you took a piece of plastic off something that was related to food, it gets a little horrifying. It's Friday today, which means it's waste day where we've already received six tons of waste. 40% of that waste will be packaging. And so that's an incredible amount of soft plastics that have nowhere to go. And it's all relative to food down to the just stupid little things. It's like, why is the chocolate inside the box, inside the plastic, also now inside plastic? So I keep coming back again to this socioeconomic part, because even when we see it in restaurants, the challenge with restaurants, you know, our unit up in Sydney, We've got really great source separating at the back of house for for the restaurants. But humans, we are fallible and we also, when we're in a rush, our our care factor diminishes exponentially. And so you, you look at back of house operations in busy restaurants and people who are paid not high wages, their concern about whether or not a chuck swipe or packaging goes into organics waste it just doesn't exist. And, and that's okay because I, I think the job of that is actually not on the, the client. I think that's now on the waste management provider or what, how we manage waste. And it's the same at the farm gate level. So if the farmer can find better ways to package produce to go to market, that's an innovation that delivers an outcome, right? So reusable or sustainable or compostable, however we want to look at it. But It's then the manufacturers or whoever receives those goods job to find better ways of handling that packaging and places for it to go. I don't like this assignment of blame for whoever touched it last. Like it feels like we're all in a circle going, ah, you touch it. And then then whoever's get left holding it at the end is the person that pays. And I feel like instead we have to go, okay, we can make these efficiencies on my end and when I punt it down the chain to the next person, they're going to find ways to deal with it in their way. I remember on a flight from Jakarta to um, Lampung, which is about 20 minutes, the tray that the airline, and I probably can't name the airline, served with, I don't know, a bit of cake or something. I I remember counting, they had 17 bits of plastic. (laughs) So if you do the maths on that in terms of, okay, there's 200 people on each plane that playing, they're flying eight times a day, da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da, yeah. It's just horrific. And, yeah. and and you're sort of like, oh, no, I can't eat it. But at, at the end of the day, it's only going to be pressure on that actual supply chain before that's going to make any difference whatsoever. Yeah, like it, once it goes into that cart on that plane, it's going to be, it's going to have been one way or the other. Whether you yeah. 
don't want it or you ate half of it, that plastic is going to landfill. And I, I think you know, there is this sort of social adoption piece where, like, my short shower won't save Australia in a drought, but me <laughs> explaining to everybody that plastic is bad and that I'd prefer stuff not to be in plastic does create momentum around change. And so, mm-hmm. but I think it's going to be more around innovations like Appeal, where we can get just start getting rid of some of this plastic out of our supply chains. And that's a great thing for farmers, right? Because if we could add these things, I don't know where we put appeal in in the supply chain, but if we can start doing some of these things at Farmgate, then it's kind of out of the rest of the supply chain, right? Because if it's been done at Farmgate or very close to, like, why am I adding anything else, right? So Yeah, it just becomes a cost for the FMCG for no benefit, so they won't do it. No, they'll be like, oh, it's already sorted. I'm not going to add more to that. So, yeah, I think there's some interesting parts there as we keep moving forward. Yeah, and that's that's exactly where we do it at the produce packing house that's co-located with where it's grown. So, yeah, I mean, it makes it easier for that. It's kind of one let we swap out the plastic and yeah, yeah. swap in our application systems. That kind of ties back to to some of the points we were making before around then requirements on farmers. Like, so if we if we want to move it up the, the supply chain, you kind of get further away from who might pay for it. And so in New Zealand, they've just introduced mandatory farm environmental plans. And the conversation has been around nitrate leaching and around some of the social license concerns and we need to clean up our waterways. And so that's led to mandatory reporting. There's also a parallel conversation around, you know, having a plan and thinking about how you'll improve can drive better business outcomes and actually leads to profitability. So I think probably jury's still out, but my sense is there's a, been a largely positive reaction to having these plans, but it's kind of a slippery slope to imposing requirements on farmers without thinking about the incentives they might get. Block, you're nodding. Any any comments on that? Yeah, well, this is, this is what we've, we've got a large portfolio in New Zealand, and this is what we're struggling with because you think, I don't know what percentage of it New Zealand dairy produce goes to skim milk powder in East and Southeast Asia, but it'd be significant, significant whack. How do you, how do you quantify to the average East Asian consumer who's fairly price conscious? How do you quantify that um, oh, you should pay twenty cents extra a kilo to look after New Zealand's um, waterways, which they would consider probably pretty clean anyway, right? So these are sort of the, I guess, the, the wicked problems that we've got across commodity chains. But if farmers actually have control of that premium and that premium's not bastardised through the supply chain, like it's actually a ticket to the product for the FMCG company and it's not something that's sort of corrupted and perverted across the supply chain as every different person tries to assign value to it or create more value out of it. I think there might be solutions there because essentially, one, the consumer knows, all right, there is transparency. It's uncorrupted. I'm I'm getting, I'm paying for what I, what I'm hoping to pay for. And and two, it's almost separated from the commodity, right? The the commodity is still skim milk powder, but there are these additional co-benefits that are a relatively direct transaction. We feel like, though, that it's sooner or later, and this is a really, I'm going to wade right into something a bit dangerous here, suggests that sooner or later we're just going to have to pay for things to be done better. Oh, I, I do. I, I do. It's not a, the problem is that it's such a long-term piece. Like you'll usually, yes, you might get restrictions on your input usage or things like that as a farmer. And that, and because it's regulatory, it's, it's far sharper. 
than the rate of increase in the technological curve, yeah. right? So you're and, and and working out the systems, working out the finance systems, or whatever it is that sort of says, okay, well, you're going to have to take the hit now because of regulatory purposes, but probably technology on yield is growing at three or four percent compound over over twenty years. So you'll probably get back to that similar yield sometime in the future. It's, it's bridging that gap and sort of keeping people in the game and relatively positive and not feeling like they're being whacked for society's ills is the bloody tricky bit. <laughs> so that gap then, yeah, because then that, that gap then is now on the producer entirely. Yeah. And so, yeah. like, is that a policy-driven thing? Like, or is this going to come from corporates? Where does this, where does that, where does the gap <laughs> come from? Yeah. We promised we each other we wouldn't talk about politics before the. Uh, <laughs> politics. I'm just asking where, where the drive. No, look, New Zealand, New Zealand, and, and certain parts of Europe have taken a really interesting course, right? In terms of really sort of regulating the way from a top-down level, the way farmers do things and the way farmers can actually farm, right? Where apart from sort of sugar farmers along the reef in Australia. We haven't got there yet. The US certainly hasn't got there yet. Latin America hasn't. There are parts of Asia in environmental sensitive zones that have, but generally it's something that we're, we're still absolutely feeling away in, in terms of is it, our, is it a societal right almost to be able to dictate how our food is produced? Why aren't we trusting farmers? So, yeah, mm-hmm. uh, look. New Zealand's um, certainly a long way down the road in that and with, I don't know, let's call it mixed results at this stage. Yeah. I'm curious, Locke, your perspective in Olympia too, if you have one on like the role of retailers. Like we see these, you know, buyers and these retail organizations who have so much control over what what the incentives are for suppliers to provide, what consumers have access to. They're basically curators of like the food we eat, the products that we can purchase, et cetera. And, and yet they're not always part of the conversation around, nor are they often incentivized to prioritize sustainability. So it's something that yeah, I'm curious if, if there's anything you're aware of that's like been focused on that or, or your, if you've had what? any experience with that. I think I think I think that's our perception, Jess. Right, but still, at the heart of every supermarket, even if they're a multinational supermarket, there's another two or three other supermarkets they're competing against, and their 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 whole business model is based on having the food available for the consumer, whatever they want. There's never any an empty shelf, and they are so fearful of that right, in terms of, all right, if we ramp up our compliance, our environmental compliance in terms of what we want, is another supermarket suddenly going to be able to supply the same product for 50% cheaper and have a much more secure supply chain because they're not excluding anybody from the market? So whilst it sounds like I'm, I'm, I'm rooting for the supermarkets here, that is still an absolute problem that they face in fresh produce. And so we see with the sort of the implementation of the Modern Slavery Act as federal legislation in Australia over the last two years that and, and sort of how that impacts on the fresh produce chain, sort of supermarkets have been like, oh, gee, does this mean I actually have to say no to a supplier, right? 
whilst it seems like, yeah, from sort of an outside perspective, they they may be able to just click their fingers and say, hey, we need X, Y, and Z. And I think you see that a little bit, especially around animal welfare, right? They have actually sort of said, hey, we can't have these risks in our supply chain. We will actually say, no, we'll start to exclude you if you don't get RSPCA certification or whatever it is in certain animal proteins. They're still in a brutally competitive environment. It comes back to the analogy of fast food versus fast fresh and knowing who you are, right? And so we have, we know from our clients that we have supermarket chains who are using the data from their waste management services with us to reduce their amount of waste. It is a self-fulfilling prophecy in supermarkets particularly and retail of, of, of any food where the the client's perception of what good food and uh, fresh food is, so full shelves, is driving decisions by supermarkets. Then they don't cut things and put them in blood wrap because nobody wants them that way, right? Their data on what we're going to buy and how we're going to buy it and what size things we buy is, is, is so tight. But the second part of that is if you are a brand that has courage in changing to those things, and so like one of our clients has that, has made a commitment, a commercial commitment to change, you can leverage that courage to change your clients. But I think that same premise can be used in retail where it's like we're going to do better for the climate and that means that as clients, if you come here, these are the changes you're going to have to experience no plastic bags without being charged, you know, and those sorts of things. And we do see that in our clients once they have data. And we made it all the way back to data. So, like, <laughs> as soon as they got data that explained just how much of their waste was food and how much of it was coming through, then they could start to make definitive decisions to their logistics and supply chains to either remove some of that or diminish it. And Money is the reason in the end, right? That saves them money, but it also drives goodwill, which then creates more money. And that's it for another episode of AgTech So What? Thank you to our guests, Lachlan Monsborough, Jessica Vieira, and Olympia Yager. This episode was an edited version of a live Oz AgriTech meetup sponsored by Food Bites by Rabobank. And before you go, I have a favor to ask. We would really appreciate your feedback on what you want to hear on this podcast. Are there certain ag tech topics that interest you or ones that don't? And do you want to hear more from farmers or startups or investors or someone else? Please take two minutes out of your day to fill out the short survey in the episode notes and on our website. It really will help us make the podcast better for you. Thanks as always for listening. I'm Sarah Nolette. Catch you next time.